want to finish up what I began last week in discussing some of the wonderful truths surrounding the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ as we look at the angelic announcements of Christ the King. Before we look at the text this morning, I'm sure you've noticed that every Christmas there seems to be an increased attack on Christianity. An increased attack on the Lord Jesus Christ, because as many people will say, and rightfully so, Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet we see the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ being besieged by those who hate him. Many people are trying to eliminate Christmas altogether. Oh, they want the holiday, but they want it to be called something different. And so you hear things like season's greetings and happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. I noticed that uh, Planned Parenthood is sending out a card where it says choice on earth and uh, which once again betrays the man's just violent commitment to be the master of his own destiny. Man's violent commitment for the freedom of the will and to be the one that determines what he or she will do. And even under the guise of separation of church and state and under the power of the evil one, our adversary, the devil, Christ-hating organizations such as the ACLU, which I like to call the Anti-Christian Legal Union, continue to pursue every conceivable angle to rid our culture of any semblance of biblical Christianity. We even see this in the so-called church, people of faith, as it is often called, where tolerance seems to be the supreme virtue. People who will do everything they can to preach some new gospel that centers around man and his needs versus God and his glory. And in light of all this, I must say that it is my great joy to take up arms against the enemy of our souls and stand before you and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And I know you're here to do the same. You know, all week long in this world in which we live, the world endeavors to dethrone God through a myriad of different means, especially with all of the temptations that appeal to our flesh. But it is my passionate prayer to restore the dominion of God upon the throne of your soul this morning through the foolishness of preaching. That's what the Apostle Paul reminded us of in 1 Corinthians 1.21, where we read that God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so I trust that you have prepared your heart this morning for this form of worship. I continue to marvel at the glory and the majesty of Christ Whenever I look into his word, and of course, we've been looking beginning last week at the angelic announcements of Christ the King. Last week, we began by examining the unique role that angels played in announcing the glorious coming of Christ. Last week, we looked at the first two of four angelic announcements that surround the birth of Christ, where they spoke to four different people, claiming four different unique 
fulfillments of prophecy and also depicting Jesus in four unique ways. Last week, we saw, first of all, Jesus as the priest king where Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in Luke 1. May I remind you that it is significant that God first broke his long silence in the temple of Jerusalem, the very place from which his glory had departed some 500 years earlier. The, the, the magnificent messenger Gabriel comes to this faithful high priest and who is offering incense, whose son would now be the forerunner of the divine priest king. And in God's marvelous plan of redemption, all of what Israel looked forward to, all that the sacrificial system pointed to, all that the prophets predicted were now going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our faithful priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. And then we also, secondly, saw the announcement to the Virgin Mary, where we see Jesus revealed as the Son of God. We learned that God's holy and infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy and infinite ransom. And only God himself could make such a provision for such a remedy to be accomplished and so, therefore, we learn that the work of redemption re required a theanthropon, a God-man, one whose human nature and divine nature would be supernaturally fused together to form an indissoluble union, a bond of, a, of God and of man, re therefore requiring a virgin birth, because Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man to be punished for our sins, the sins of those that God had chosen to redeem, but yet he also had to be God in order to endure the sufferings of the elect. So today, after seeing Jesus as priest and king, as well as the son of God, we see now the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. And we go to Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. Follow along as I read. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. A very fascinating story. Joseph being a construction worker, probably a carpenter. But also a righteous man, verse 19 tells us, therefore being an Old Testament saint, 
a man who loved the Lord his God and was depending upon him for mercy and grace because he knew that he could not fulfill the law. Little did he know that he would be the father of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of an adopted father. And here he was betrothed or engaged to a young gal by the name of Mary, as we have learned. And he discovers that she's pregnant. This must have been a devastating thing, as you can imagine. And of course, he know he knew that God places a special premium upon sexual purity. Joseph understood that scripture is very clear. God demands abstinence outside of marriage and he demands sexual fidelity inside of marriage. And anything different would certainly incur divine chastening. And certainly Joseph now assumes that Mary has, as we would put it, cheated on him. He had to have been confused, probably wondering, does she really love me or whoever this other man must be? But because of his enormous love for her, he decided not to publicly disgrace her or shame her or humiliate her, which many times occurred in that Jewish culture. And so he decided rather to put her away secretly, which was a common term, by the way, for divorce. And of course, this would have would have been legitimate, a legitimate course of action under the Mosaic law. So here he is in personal agony. He's confused. He's devastated. He's hurt. He's overwhelmed. And yet we see from the text that his mind is made up. He is going to put her away. He's going to divorce her, which, by the way, in the. Jewish system of betrothal and marriage in order to break even an engagement, it would require a writ of divorcement. Well, this is precisely the kind of situation in which the Lord loves to intervene. And so an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. It may have been Gabriel. We're not told. And God intervenes in Joseph's pain. And he does so in two primary ways. First of all, he explains what's going on. He explains his purpose. Notice in verses 20 and 21, he says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't divorce her. She has not been unfaithful, but rather... The child's father is God himself. Now, imagine the relief. Imagine the relief and anticipating that Joseph is going to wonder why what's going on. Verse 21, he says, and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Dear friends, herein is the divine purpose. The child will be a savior of sins. And his name says it all. Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh will save. Notice the child will be a savior of sins. He will not be one who comes along to boost your self-esteem. He was not sent to come along and give you purpose to your life, even though for us as believers, he gives us that. He didn't come along to help us hit more home runs or to heal all of our diseases or to make us filthy rich. But he came to save his people from their sins. You see, folks, we must remember that there is absolutely nothing on earth more devastating than sin. 
We're told in the word of God in first John three, four, that sin is lawlessness. It is a violation of God's holy standard. It is missing the mark of divine holiness. It is open rebellion against God. It is high treason against the glory and the majesty of the Lord of hosts. As we think of sin, we know that sin has separated man from God spiritually. Sin even separated man from nature. Now we must work and endure and do so by the sweat of our brow. Also, sin separated man from man. We see the curse on Adam and Eve and the unique conflict that begins to occur between man and wife and male and female. And so we even know that because of sin, there's conflict in the spiritual realm. Sin rules every heart. We're all born into it. No one escapes from it. Sin attacks everyone at birth. And over the years, it destroys and it disfigures. It degrades. Every tear is caused by sin. Every heartache. Every divorce. Every death. Because of sin, we know biblically that man is spiritually dead. Because of sin, man is at enmity with God. He is alienated from God. Because of sin, we are slaves of the kingdom of darkness. Because of sin, those apart from Christ will hear his word and read his word and it will be foolishness to them. Because of sin, man is spiritually dead. He is spiritually blind. He is spiritually deaf. He is utterly incapable of doing anything on his own to being reconciled with God. He has no desire for God because of sin. Man would never repent unless God intervened and gave him and would give him the gift of faith. Because as we read earlier in Ephesians two, it's for by grace that you have been saved through faith and not that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Sin is the most catastrophic problem in the universe. I like to think of it this way. Sin is to humanity what radiation is to the flesh. It burns and destroys and disfigures and eventually kills. And sin should cause all men to tremble with fear. But because one of the chief characteristics of sin is to blind people from its seriousness and its consequence. Many times the, the, the damned tend to frolic, if you will. In their sin and in their wicked rebellion, like children playing in the snow. Because of sin, the creator subjected the whole of his creation to futility, Romans 8 tells us. Because of sin, all of creation is enslaved, enslaved to the corruptive powers of sin. If I can make it even more practical, because of sin... Marriages fall apart because of sin. Husbands become abusive tyrants addicted to their own lusts because of sin. Wives can become harlots with no fear of God, slaves of their own lusts, willing to even abort their own babies and abandon their living children to the influences of the world, which is the worst form of child abuse. Because of sin, millions are blinded by religious systems contrived by the evil one and disseminated through men and often women who 
are under the influence of demons. And because of sin, we know that there is a wage. And the wages of sin is what? It is death. And none of us escape it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, this is what the angel is announcing to, jo- to Joseph. Jesus will be the savior from their sin. So he explains the purpose. But secondly, he also reveals his prophecy. Notice in verses 22 and verses 23. Now, all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and here he quotes Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, let me give you the context here. It's a very fascinating context. Back in Isaiah 7, we begin to read about King Ahaz, who reigned over Judah. Now, you might recall that King Ahaz was the son of Uzziah. You can just allow me to digress here for a moment. This will make sense to you in a minute. He was the son of Uzziah. And this Ahaz was a very, very wicked king. In fact, in Isaiah 5, Isaiah comes and he, uh, Uzziah has, has died now. And, and he comes, or I, I should say he's about to die. And Isaiah comes and, and pronounces judgment upon Judah because of their religious hypocrisy, because of their idolatry. They were filled with sexual immorality, all kinds of perversions, drunken dissipation, materialism, corrupt leadership, and on and on it goes. And yet they thought that they were the spiritual elite. They were also, by the way, militarily invincible, which makes them a a staggering parallel to the United States of America. And so King Uzziah dies and then Ahaz takes the throne. And Ahab, I mean, Ahaz is really the poster child. Of all of these abominations, he reinstituted, for example, the worship of Molech, and he even sacrificed his own son. This is how wicked this man was. Now, as the story goes, the historical account, God tells us that uh, the kings of Syria and Samaria uh, threatened to dethrone Ahaz and his uh, land there of, of Judah. And, of course, this would jeopardize the promise that God had given for the Messiah to eventually come through the lineage and the throne and the line of David. But in the face of such a threat, you would think that the king would cry out to God in repentance and say, oh, God, help us. These kings are going to come against us. But no, instead, he did something very different. He sought protection from another very wicked king to the north, Tiglath-Pileser, of Assyria. So God sends Isaiah to confront Ahaz, to warn him to repent and to assure him that God himself will deal with the threat from Syria and from Samaria to trust him. Don't trust the Assyrians. Trust the Lord, your God. Well, Ahaz refused and he even removed all of the gold from the temple to give to Tiglath-Pileser to seal their unholy relationship. Isaiah goes the second time to plead with him to repent and to ask God for deliverance and to trust in him. But he refused. Now, in light of such wicked rebellion, such blatant rebellion against the faithful mercies of God, 
this prophecy is made. And actually, it begins in verse 13. Notice, notice what he says. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, this is curious. He's going to give this sign, this prophecy to King Ahaz. Well, the way that we have to understand this is if you look at the Hebrew, you will see that the word you is in the plural. Therefore, the prophet is addressing not only Ahaz, but all of the covenant people, promising that he would not allow anyone to annihilate his people. And by the way, that is still true today, though Israel remains the most hated nation on the planet. God continues to protect them, even in their rebellion. Nor will he allow anyone to terminate the royal line of David, which, by the way, was predicted some 1400 years earlier. In Genesis 49, verse 10, where we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Likewise, God had promised to David through the prophet Nathan some 900 years earlier in 2 Samuel 7:13, to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, let's put this together. Some 700 years later, this, profi- this prophecy is fulfilled. God's promised sign indicating that he would never forsake his people, that he would never allow the lineage of his kingship to depart from David, is all coming true through Emmanuel, God with us. So here's what he's saying to Joseph in effect. Joseph, don't be afraid to marry you're the love of your life, Mary. God himself has conceived within her the promised emancipator of sin, the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And of course, Joseph, by the way, was from the lineage of David. That's why the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, because uh, this would verify that Jesus, who would be Joseph's legally adopted son, had the royal right to ascend the throne. In fact, I might add that Matthew's gospel is devoted to establishing the royal lineage of Jesus as the rightful heir of the throne of David, as well as his deity. So this is great news. Joseph not only can marry the love of his life, who is still a virgin, but together they have the unfathomable privilege of parenting the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who will save his people from their sin. Emmanuel, God with us. This concept of God with us is very, very important for you to understand, dear friends. It's an important Old Testament concept. Because as we look in the Old Testament in particular, we see that God repeatedly promised that his presence would guarantee the fulfillment of his covenantal promises to his people. His presence and his presence was manifested in radiant, brilliant light. Which demonstrated the presence of his glory. The presence of God, you will recall, 
was housed within the tabernacle and the temple. Now, listen carefully. In fact, the Hebrew term for tabernacle, mishkan, was derived from a root word, shakan. That means to dwell or to rest or to abide. And from shakan comes another word, shekinah, denoting the glorious presence of God that would dwell or rest or abide with his people. Now, this Shekinah throughout the Old Testament was always a mysterious light, the mysterious light of his presence. The glorious Shekinah was housed in the tabernacle and later the temple. And now what the angel is telling Joseph is now this glorious Shekinah is going to be contained in a child, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus the Christ. And isn't it fascinating that later on in John 1 verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, is it any wonder, dear friends, that the fourth and final angelic announcement would include a dazzling display of the Shekinah glory of the living God, who came to tabernacle amongst us to be our Savior and Lord. And here we find this in Luke chapter 2, when the angel comes and appears to the shepherds in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now think about this. Keep the pattern here. First, we've seen Gabriel appear to the priest Zacharias and depict Jesus as the priest king. And then to the Virgin Mary, focusing on Jesus as the Son of God. And then to Joseph emphasizing the fact that he is our savior. And now he comes to these lowly shepherds announcing the birth of Jesus, the savior. And he does so in this glorious light of the Shekinah glory of God, the resplendent glory of the living God, emphasizing Jesus as the glory of God. Notice again in verse nine, the angel of the Lord suddenly stands before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. Sheer terror is the appropriate response to the blazing light of holiness that penetrates every secret cavern in the human heart and exposes every sin of the imagination. And of course, such exposure, such brilliant holy light requires divine comfort as well. And that's why in verse 10 we read, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Friends, isn't it wonderful that the news is good? 
Think of this now. The manifestation of his glorious presence had not come to judge, but to grant mercy. In fact, now this glorious presence of God, this light of his Shekinah is housed and abiding in a child in a manger in Bethlehem. Because you see, when he came the first time, he did not come in vengeance and wrath, but in humility and in mercy. He did not come to search and destroy, but to seek and to save. He did not come to punish, but rather to forgive. Now, you must understand the big picture of redemption. This is such a glorious concept. And for some of you, you may have heard some of this before. But for others, I know you haven't. So let me digress once again to give you the big picture of redemption. As we think about God's love in motion and his presence that would come down to redeem those that he has chosen. The ineffable brilliance of the light of God's presence was indeed a frightening mystery in the Old Testament. And it was central in understanding the grand theme of redemptive history. Now, remember, God is spirit. And whenever God would materialize himself, many times he would do so with this glorious light, the Shekinah, again, the radiance of his presence. When we think of the presence of God, we have to go all the way back to the garden. And we remember with Adam and Eve, we know that they walked with God in the cool of the day. And the Bible says that they did so in the presence of God. They enjoyed sweet fellowship with him. But sin enters and they refused to give God the glory that he deserved. And the light of his presence would therefore have consumed them. And so he removes them from the garden. And you will recall that he posts angels around the garden with a flaming sword to keep them out, which would have been an act of divine mercy, lest they be consumed in their sin. And so we see sin now separating man from God. And so God removes sin and removes himself, separates himself from sin. But grace is immediately set into motion. Think of this. God in his mercy continues to pursue them and he brings back his glorious presence. And I won't take time to go through all of the story. You can do that on your own, but you begin, I hope, to see the pattern. Later on, we see the presence of God in Exodus 13, where he led his people through the wilderness in Sinai. And you will recall that that Shekinah brilliant light of his glory was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And later on in Exodus 33, the covenant people, after 400 years of captivity in Egypt and wandering around in the wilderness, worshiping the golden calf and now in need for repentance to the point where he even required them to take off their jewelry. Now it's time to enter the promised land. And Moses needed assurance that the presence of God was going to go with the people. And so you will recall that he goes up onto the mount and he says to God, oh, I pray that you show me your glory. And God, you will recall, hid him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand and, and, and passed over him and said that you can only see my backside. You cannot see my face. But he tells him that my presence is going to go with you. The glory returns again. The pattern man sins. Separation occurs. God seeks. There is repentance. There is forgiveness. And the glory returns. And now 
I'm sure the Lord is asking now, will you acknowledge my glory? And the answer was basically no. You will recall that many of the children of Israel died in the wilderness. They remained stiff-necked and rebellious. But grace continues to pursue because God has a plan of redemption, because God has loved us even while we were yet sinners. And there is nothing that can thwart the divine purpose of redeeming his own. And so some years later in Exodus 40, we read of the tabernacle being erected at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the 12 tribes of, of Israel are camped around it, and they are positioned in such a way as to all all of them being able to focus on the tabernacle, which was a, was a prefigure of the Messiah to come. And inside of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, which was the dwelling place of God, stood the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat, and the cherubim hovered over them in gold. And that was where the glorious Shekinah of His presence would hover. And that, in Exodus 40 and verse 34, we read how the glory cloud descends. We read that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and hovers between the cherubim over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant that contained the law that had been violated. But the people still refused to be obedient. And the cycle continues. Sin separates. Later, there is some forgiveness. The glory returns. Later in 1 Kings 8, you will recall Solomon builds a permanent temple. No longer do we have a tabernacle, but now a temple in Jerusalem. And we read there that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord to the point where the priests were unable to even minister. The Shekinah presence of the living God returns again. Don't you get the idea, folks, that worship is all about giving God glory? Now will you obey me? But the answer ultimately is no. And over the years, they continued to apostatize and refuse to give God glory. And in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10, there is an incredible description of the hideous corruption of idolatry that characterized the people. And in that text, we see Ezekiel watching the Shekinah presence of the living God gradually departing from the temple and even from the city. And that's where the term Ichabod comes into play, which means the glory has departed. And symbolically, we might say that Ichabod was written across the door of the temple that day. We read in that wonderful passage in Ezekiel 8 through 10, how that literally the glory of God, the presence of God and that brilliant light rises from between the cherub. And then it hovers over the threshold of the temple court. And later, the text describes how that it, it moves again and pauses over the east gate of the Lord's house. Which by, which, by the way, was the same gate that later on the Lord Jesus departed from when he was rejected in the temple. And then Ezekiel 11 and verse 23 reads, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, which, of course, was none other than the Mount of Olives. By the way, the precise sequence of the departure of his glorious presence will be reversed when he returns again in power and great glory. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And now, 
500 years later, the sign of his presence returns. 500 years, there's been no glory. There's been no Shekinah. There's been no angels. And suddenly the celestial brilliance of the divine presence returns to lowly shepherds, probably caring for the sacrificial sheep that were used in the temple. And here they are on a Judean hillside. And verse 11 is just an amazing illustration of this grace. The good news of, of, of a Savior that has been born is first announced to the lowliest of all, the, of all of that culture. And notice that it says that he has been born for you. He's been born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, the light of his presence has descended to earth. And isn't it wonderful how that, that, that God comes first to, to exalt the lowly? The long-awaited Savior prophesied and prefigured in the Old Testament has finally come and He comes to the lowly, not to the elite. The one pictured by millions of animal sacrifices that would never forgive sins finally comes. The Word does become flesh and is now dwelling amongst us and we can behold His glory. And you will recall the word of God says that when Jesus came, he came as the light of the world to deliver men from darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. In fact, in Second Corinthians four, six, we read that Christ has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Yes, sin has separated man from the holy presence of God. But friends, never doubt it. God has always sought us and he continues to pursue us with an unfailing love. And in him there is forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God. And then we have this angelic choir that suddenly surrounds the shepherds. And for some reason this this week, I thought about the sheep. You know, those sheep must have been absolutely frozen stiff. I, I'm sure God had to do something. You know, you did, imagine this scene with the shepherds and these sheep. And first is one angel in this glorious light of the presence of God. And, and, and then you have all of these other angels around and they, and, and they begin to praise God and, and sing. And it, it's fascinating in verse, verse, verse 13 we read, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Think of it. These angelic messengers who had been eyewitnesses to the glory of God in heaven are, and, and who have hovered around the throne of God, who have seen the majesty of the father who have witnessed the excellency of the Holy Spirit, who had seen firsthand the, the, the glory of the Son prior to His incarnation. Now, here they are. Don't you know they had to be stunned with such divine humility as for the, the, the Son of God to set aside His majesty and His glory and to empty Himself, as Paul said in Philippians 2, and to take on the form of a bondservant and to be made in the likeness of men. Angels had to have been dumbfounded, dumbfounded with the love of God for God himself to stoop so low as to vicariously bear the curse that rested upon those whom he came to save. What an indescribably marvelous mercy that we have. Oh, child of God, 
When you think of the lights of Christmas, and you know, we always have them on Christmas trees, and many times there's a star that's put up on the top, and of course most people have no idea the significance of what all of that really means. But I hope you do. I hope that when you see these lights, you will think of the presence of God dwelling amongst men in the incarnate Christ. By the way, it's fascinating, like all of the other angelic announcements, this resplendent light of Christ was also prophesied. If we were to go back to Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, we read there that a star shall come forth from Jacob. By the way, the term star in the Hebrew is kochav, and and it means a shining forth, a, a, a blazing forth is going to come forth from Jacob. Now, certainly elements of this prophecy were fulfilled with this angelic announcement here with the shepherds. But more specifically, later on, we see much more of this of this kochav shining forth. By the way, the Magi, who were the uh, kingmakers from Persia, um, saw the, the saw a star uh, an austere in Greek, which is the Greek version of Kochav, which also means a blazing forth or a shining forth, which would have been, I believe, the Shekinah glory of God. They saw that and knew immediately where to go. Many of them had been taught many, many years earlier by Daniel, who had saved them. Daniel, no doubt, had taught them much about the coming Messiah. And so they see the Shekinah glory of God and they immediately make their way to Bethlehem, knowing that the Messiah has come. By the way, that's radically different than some of the mythology that we hear about some star and some uh, astrological sign or whatever. None of that has any bearing in Scripture. And so we see the kingmakers, the Magi coming and eventually they even see the Shekinah hovering over the place where the Christ child lay. We also read in Acts, you recall, when Paul was blinded by the Shekinah of the divine presence on the road to Damascus. And in Luke chapter 9, later we see the, how the, the, that our Lord allows the, the, the brilliant light of his presence to emanate from his body. You will remember that Jesus allowed this ineffable glory to blaze forth on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And in verse 29 of Luke 9, we read this. And while he, referring to Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming, which, by the way, could be translated glistening. And it's used only here in the New Testament. And once again, it... Its translation means a a, a brilliant flashing light like lightning. And later on in that text, it says, and they saw his glory. And by the way, in Matthew 17, verse two, Matthew describes it this way. And he referring to Christ was transfigured. The Greek term for transfigured is the word from which we get metamorphosis. And so there was a metamorphosis that took place. Jesus there on that mount took The form of his heavenly glory. He did it right before them. So the text says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Indeed, folks, Christ is the radiance or literally the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, according to Hebrews 1, 3. But tragically, the savior that came was rejected. He was despised. And the glory departed. 
And it's been gone now for about 2,000 years, although it is at some level housed in his church. As we read in Colossians 1:27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But Jesus, being our priest king, the son of God, the savior from sin and the glory of God will return. May I remind you of the text when he comes again in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And I believe that would be that Shekinah. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Literally, he will come on glory clouds. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. In fact, we also know that in Isaiah chapter 60, the verse, first three verses, as well as other texts, that the glory of the Lord will blaze forth once again during the millennial kingdom. In that text, we read, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. We also know, dear friends, that the capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21, will be lit up by the Shekinah of the presence of the living God. Because there in Revelation 21 and verse 22, we read that the glory of God has illumined it, referring to the new Jerusalem, and its lamp is the lamb. Isn't that a marvelous concept? And I would challenge you with one simple response. Dear friends, have you bowed the knee to Jesus as the priest king, as, as the son of God, as the savior of the sin of your sins? The one who has revealed himself as the light of the world. What have you done with Jesus? Indeed, he is the glory of God. And we're told, for those of us that know and love the Lord, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for what? You do it all for the glory of God. Beloved, may I encourage you to live in the light of his glorious return. Someday, and we, could, we believe it could happen at any time, He's going to come and snatch away His church, His bride. And how will He find you when He comes? Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready? Christian, are you ready? Those of you that have confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. And I want to close with a passage of Scripture written by one of the eyewitnesses who saw the glory of the risen Christ there on that Mount of Transfiguration, the Apostle John. And here's the admonition that he gives to us in First John 2, beginning in verse 28. He says, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Later on, he says, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What a wonderful thought that someday 
we will be like Him and we will see Him like He is. I trust that you are living in the light of the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. May they find lodging in our hearts and may they bear much fruit. And I pray especially for that one that might be within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of you as our wonderful Savior. Lord, I pray that today will be the day that they confess their sin. That today will be the day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, we commit that to you. And we plead with you on their behalf. And we do so in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.